I'm a full believer that you need a human to have a human experience. And no matter how much these computers get advanced, I would be so surprised to see the impact that they would have compared to another human being in front of you and really hearing you and giving you answers. This week I welcome two guests, NYC-based clinical psychologist Dr. Tara Imrani and corporate lawyer Mehdi Anzari. Tara and Mehdi were both born and raised in Tehran, Iran, before moving to the US to study. Now husband and wife, they met while studying at UC Berkeley. And Tara and Mehdi go on to describe their parallel journeys to psychology and corporate law. I asked Tara to explain her humanistic, multidimensional approach to treatment and the differences to the new talk therapy platforms like Talkspace. Tara discusses the mental health challenges that have emerged since the onset of the pandemic and how she helps her patients deal with them, as well as the underlying stresses, sadness, anxiety and depression that afflict so many. She describes pivoting to online therapy and the differences to in-person treatment. Mehdi describes the impact that the pandemic has had on his firm's staff, the work practices and the relationships, and he goes on to discuss why he's trying to drive a mental health agenda and narrative inside the firm. He also describes the different structural approaches that firms are taking as we snap back from the pandemic and what he expects to be the many unanticipated impacts on training, teamwork and career progression. He also explains the value of those serendipitous water cooler moments in organisations and why these have been lost on platforms like Zoom and Teams, as well as the increased transactional costs that have resulted. But Tara and Mehdi discuss the future role of therapy inside organisations and why the resultant positive impact on the bottom line, staff retention and a happier, more productive environment are important. Both Tara and Mehdi discuss the role of parents to prepare children for an AI future and the displacement AI will have on today's simple transactional processes. Finally, they both reflect on the impact of serendipity on their journey. Now, if you're a parent and you've been affected by mental health, whether personally, with a family or friend or in the work environment, I think you'll be uplifted by the clarity and commitment of Tara and Mehdi to changing the narrative around mental health. Now on with the show. Mehdi, Tara, welcome to the Impossible Network podcast. Thanks for having us, Mark. Yeah, it's great to be here. Before we uh, get into your joint life focus, and I should say this, this is a novel interview because it's the first time we've had a husband and wife guest on the on the show. We've had brother and sister, but never husband and wife. So let's jump into it. Now, Tara, just for context, you're Dr. Tara Rami, and you are a, a clinical psychologist based here in New York, mm-hmm. or virtually as COVID has dictated at the moment. And Mehdi, you are a corporate lawyer working, Mehdi Ansari, working here in New York and virtually as well. We'll come and talk about your life focus. But before we do, it'd be really good if you just give some context uh, about your your childhood and life growing up. I believe you were both born in Iran before coming to study in California. So maybe just give a bit of context because obviously if you were individually, we could really dive deep into it. But maybe just to sort of paint the picture of your parallel tracks and where you came together and the impact of your upbringing on the direction you've taken in life? Sure, I can go first. It's actually interesting because although we were both born and raised in Tehran, Iran, our tracks were a little bit different in terms of like the life we've kind of um, had. But I grew, I was born and raised in Tehran, Iran. and Great city. Yes, actually very much like New York, very kind of hustle and bustle and just, and from the early on, as I recall, the whole plan was to 
come to the U.S. for university. So it's just like all the schooling and everything and learning English throughout those years was the purpose of like, you know, coming here. And then around 16, I was actually 15, I finished a sophomore year in Iran. And then we moved to Southern California. And then I had to do two years of high school here because in Iran, you finish in four years, but uh, in three years, but here you do four. So I had to finish high school here. And then I went to college, University of California, Los Angeles, and then kind of continued from then to go to graduate school and just move around. I think in matter of 10 years, I moved 12 times. Wow. That's, that's disruptive. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. All right. So a, a little bit about my story. I think I was born and raised in Tehran also, but I, my whole life, I'd assumed I'd stay there. There were no plans. There was no active contemplation of moving anywhere outside of Iran. And then it just kind of happened. I was in high school. I have a bunch of family that live in Northern California who you know, would visit over the summers and would have conversations with us and particularly my parents about you know, eventually the U.S. would be a good place for not just for school, but for work. And, you know, I had always just thought of it as chatter and nothing was going to materialize. And I wasn't particularly even interested in moving at the time. It wasn't like something I was excited about necessarily. It was just I was ambivalent toward it. And then I think it was one summer my dad told me, we think it makes sense. And if you're up for it, we're going to move you, just me, to the U.S. So it was a little different than Tara in that none of my family members moved. My sisters were in school. My dad had a, a well-established job. My mom was very happy in Iran. So I ended up moving to Northern California, a, a little city outside of Berkeley, to live with my aunt, who had graciously accepted to kind of take me under her wing. And ended up going to college there, went to Berkeley, UC Berkeley, studied engineering and computer science. And again, my thought had been to do that for the rest of my life. Maybe I'll go to graduate school. Maybe I'll teach. You know, those were the... And then somewhere around junior year, it just kind of hit me that the graduate course wasn't that exciting, actually, to me. And the concept of the thought of doing research or getting a job at a company and being involved in engineering wasn't actually, it was like theoretically exciting, but practically as I was getting closer and closer to it and learning more about it, it wasn't all that much fun. And then a professor of mine put the idea of law school in my head because he was like, hey, you know, a lot of engineering students are kind of quiet. You're very vocal. You're very, you know, you like speaking in class. You like writing because I was working on a paper with him. And so he told me, have you thought about going to law school and doing, you know, involving yourself with intellectual property, which is kind of a mix of law and engineering and innovation, which up to that point I had like thought about nothing. You know, I, I wasn't one of those kids who grew up wanting to be a lawyer at all. My family's all like doctors and engineers. And so it was a real departure. But he introduced me to a professor at the law school in Berkeley, who I spoke with a bit, ended up sitting on one of his classes, loved it. And then and then I ended up, you know, I decided to go to law school, went to Berkeley, thankfully, because I loved the place. And then practiced in the Bay Area for about seven years. And then I met Tara uh, in the interim. And then we lived in San Francisco together for a while and then moved to New York about five years ago. Mm. And what about you, Tara? What's the grand plan always to focus on 
psychotherapy. You must be a psychologist. No, Mehdi, as as a lawyer he is, he definitely kind of wrapped it up pretty well. That's amazing the way you kind of explained it. So yeah, my story, I think in comparison to Mehdi is like when we moved here, I'm actually the funny story is I've always wanted to be a lawyer. So (laughs) that's the fun. Yes. So all my life, even since I was a little girl, I would go around and be like, because my grandfather, my paternal grandfather was a lawyer in Iran and I really wanted to kind of be like him. So all my life, I was just kind of going towards law degree. And when I was at UCLA, I did the, I really liked psychology and the kind of study of human behaviors. And because of the way I was, I was such a curious kid and I wanted to kind of be friends with everyone, know everyone. And I took my time really learning about other people and applying myself. So psychology was something that draw me into it. And when I was choosing majors in school for law school, everyone mentioned like, if you do something like general, like psychology, you can like go to medical school. If you ever change, it was like, Mm -hmm. no, I want to go to law school. So I just did psychology just to kind of prep myself for law school. And during the time I was studying psychology, I was actually clerking at a law firm. I loved my job and like everything was the plan. I'm, I'm such a planner. So my whole plan all life was to be a lawyer. And then around the time that I was studying for the LSAT, I just noticed like law wasn't for me. I just kind of the material was dry. For some reason, I just kind of was getting the, the, the point that maybe this is not for me, but I didn't have the how would you say the kind of the the gut to actually say, I don't mm-hmm. want to do this? Because imagine everyone around me thought I'm going to law school. But then one day I actually went my to my dad, who actually is was he was the one who was like my motivator. And I told him, I don't think I like law and I'm confused. And he's like, hey, actually being confused is a good thing. That means you have choices. So if you don't mm-hmm. want to do it, and he spent money on like classes and everything. So I felt like it's going to be like, no, you're going to school. He's like, you know, just take a break. Don't go to law school, just figure yourself out. So I think that gave me the relief that I needed to kind of accept that maybe this is not for me. And then for a year, I actually did, I was a behavioral analyst working with child with developmental disorders, especially autism. So kind of that kind of really induced this idea of like, oh my God, I love psychology. I love helping people. I get so much gratification from kind of doing some work that has result. And then during that time, I applied to graduate schools. And I got into a PhD program in Northern California, Palo Alto University with consortium with Stanford University in women's health and neuroscience. And then just kind of took me there and kind of I move up north and kind of my journey with psychology and psychotherapy started there. And, and lo and behold, we moved here. And in 2017, I started my own practice. Okay. What about, just a bit of context, both your parents, were either of them either practicing in law or in medicine or psychology at all? So my, both of my, my parents are like industrial pharmacologists. So they both Mm -hmm. worked in uh, large pharmaceutical companies in Iran, don't have any lawyers in the family other than my youngest aunt, who is, is so close to me in age. I think she was even going to law school when I was in high school. So but that's the only lawyer we have in the family. But like I said, our family is all 
doctors, pharmacologists, and a bunch of engineers. My uncle, like my mm-hmm. mom's brother is an engineer, other engineers in the family. Law was not a natural career choice. And actually, when I told my father that I was going to pursue law in the U.S., he was very unhappy. Because in Iran, the practice of law is a lot less, you know, it's, it's, it's not as glamorous as here. It involves a lot more, you know, maybe you have to pay people, maybe you have to do some shady That's stuff. And so he, he actually told me, he was like, I raised you better than that. You know, than to be a lawyer. And I, I was explaining, it was like, it's not really like that in the U.S. It's a very well-respected profession. We don't, like, there's no bribing here. There's no cutting corners. It's actually, and I'm planning on going to a good law school and doing like the, you know, the clean type of law. Mm-hmm. But he was, in the beginning, he was very resistant to the idea. And then mm-hmm. little by little, he learned about it. But it was definitely a new thing in our family to have me go to law school. What about you, Tara? Mm. So mine is not as clear as that. Uh, funny enough, my my mom was mostly a stay-at-home mom because I think during the time she wanted to go to the university, they shut down all the universities. And so she could kind of lost the chance. She couldn't go into university. And by the time they opened up, she had us. So she kind of was home taking care of us mostly. And my dad had his own business. He's just a studied business, kind of had had his own business in shipping industry. And so nothing related to psychology at all. But when my mom actually moved here, we all moved here. She, I always look up to her and it's just such an honor. She actually started studying at the time we were all studying. So she too got her bachelor's in psychology at- Oh, wow. Yes, California State University, Long Beach. So there's a little battle, battle of the grades going on there. Yes, it was such a proud moment. Who scored higher? Mom or you? No, I think, I, you know, no, I think uh, I'm very studious. So I think- <laughs> It's different, but she did good. She managed with two kids and uh, she did great. Her, her score and like he's, her grades were up. Her essays were great and she did it. It took a lot of perseverance and hard work, which it's something to look up to, you know? So yeah, she's she's in psychology as well. And so she really enjoyed it. Well, let's, let's jump into your both your career focuses. You've, obviously you arrived in New York a few years ago, but Tara, you... You said you you run a practice in New York and obviously last year has changed dramatically. You employ what's described as a humanistic approach. I believe you're inspired by Carl Rogers in terms of his philosophy or his approach to treatment of patients, providing a very practical, personalised approach to tools to help your clients, of which I believe many of them are high-performing individuals in their own careers, stay on top of their game. Could you just elaborate a bit on that? Because, I mean, I've spoken to other therapists, psychotherapists on on the podcast, but I don't think people necessarily understand the different elements or approaches to psychology. I mean, I know a lot of people maybe understand CBT, but if you could just maybe unwrap a little bit about your approach and the difference between what you do and maybe what other therapists how they treat their patients. Of course, Mark. And that's a great question because I think most of the people kind of that seek out therapy or to kind of look for a psychologist have the same question. 
there's this sense of like, what do you do? Like, what do I believe in? Because I think nowadays with the advancement in um, technology and access to knowledge, there's so many different ways a therapy or a psychologist is presented. So I think my understanding and to answer your question, my approach is very personalized because of the experiences and experiences in terms of evidence-based practices I've been trained in. I've done, like my whole graduate school was very much focused on cognitive behavior therapy and really focusing on skills-based therapies such as acceptance commitment therapy, DBT, dialectical behavior therapy, and kind of combination of all of that was great. And actually I enjoyed that very much because it's very tool-based. So someone is coming Mm -hmm. to you and needs help to kind of get themselves together, that they can really utilize those tools. But one thing that I learned along the way that it's not just about giving people tools. It's about understanding them and kind of really sitting with them and hearing them and learning from them. So the humanistic approach that I really kind of enjoy and I I kind of my practice is based on is a combination like I, I would say one thing that makes me maybe different, I'm sure there's other people like me too, is that I'm not afraid to mix it all up. There's this mm-hmm. feeling that, hey, I can use CBT when someone needs tools. I can use uh, this evidence-based practice that research have shown to be so great and a lot of improvement, but also I can use this humanistic approach that is very emotional-based and you can sit with the patient and teach them that it's okay to feel and explore. And a combination of that results in people both learning that they can too learn tools to better themselves, but also give themselves seconds to understand some of these emotions is coming for a reason and they're humans. And that's why they're experiencing what they're experiencing and not feel so much shame and guilt. Because this last year is really, COVID has thrust mental well-being, mental health into the limelight. And particularly we've seen the great acceleration of change in healthcare that things have been allowed to go virtual, which is a fantastic progression that you could never have imagined two years ago. But obviously there's platforms now like Talkspace and Better Health out there. What would you describe as the difference between what you do and how, you know, how they deliver their, their treatments and their support for patients? Would it be this mixing up? They have a standardized approach to treatment. Yeah, and that's a great question. I think you're I think on the positive note, I think it's great that people have so much access. I remember when I was at the VA and working a lot uh, with the veterans, there were so many suburb areas that people didn't have access. And at the time there was a talks off, like this virtual world where we can have like a location where we would go and see like the clients that couldn't come to us through computer and virtual and HIPAA compliant. And it was such a kind of back then, it was such a big thing. And all of us wanted to learn more about it. So this access to care is brilliant, and I think it's going to open a lot of doors. But on the other hand, side, I think this uh, talk space and better health, I, to be honest, I have to be fair. I don't know the extent of it, how much they monitor a lot of ways, but I think that there should be a good balance. Sometimes people kind of use the pendulum, like there is access to care, which is awesome, but they now use it so much that they cannot learn how to rely on themselves. So the fear is like if 
there's so much access, then how do you learn, especially mental health, how do you learn to kind of soothe yourself, learn how to calm yourself down if you're like always can access someone to talk? Okay. Could you then discuss that this last year that's obviously disrupted everyone's life and every industry and the impact it's had on on people's mental well-being and the challenges you think we face in the coming years. So, I mean, this, I, I mean, I don't know where to start. I mean, the social isolation, the fear people feel. I was at, had a, a friend's birthday lunch today and with one person's birthday is, has been traveling around Central America as a nomad, not wearing masks, had COVID, hasn't had a vaccination, is very laissez-faire about the whole thing. The other person, funnily enough, an Iranian who lives here in the city, who teaches, was just like, I can't believe your attitude to this. We have to be more careful. This is this. You... So we've got this. What I sense is that some people are increasingly fearful. And will we get over that? The, the impact that's having on relationship pressures of just people either not seeing partners, family members, of being on top of each other for ridiculous amounts of time, the pressures of homeschooling, there's so many layers to the pressure. How are you encountering this in your work and how are you counselling and guiding people and how to deal with it? And do you think this will pass and how long do you think it will take to pass? I know there's a lot in there. <laughs> yeah. No, I think those are really good questions. I might not remember all the questions, but I can start with that. I do see it a lot. It is actually something that I'm thinking about it a lot because I'm seeing it a lot, both in my practice and outside my practice, you know, in friends and families. It's been a, it's been a hectic year. I think the first thing I would say is like this pandemic has happened and it's been pretty traumatizing for us all, but no one wants to mention that. I think everyone's kind of doing their best to go about their lives and kind of get promotions or get a job or handle their jobs, kind of kind of continue your marriage or propose and build up a life, have a baby, not have a baby. Like all those stuff are happening while this is happening. And lo and behold, people are forgetting that our stress level are already here. Mm -hmm. And that's the first thing I would say. I think that kind of that putting, ignoring that fact uh, kind of makes people question themselves a lot in terms of like how they're dealing with things. Why are they so much more intense or uh, like looking at things in different angles, right? Some people go to this extreme of like, I don't care. I'm going to go travel. I become a nomad and just like, you know, get COVID. I'm fine, right? And some people get so isolated and anxious and worried about the kind of possibility of what's going to happen to them or to the future. So you see both extremes, as, as you mentioned. And in terms of like how I deal with it, my practice is, you know, going back to the humanistic approach is to really validate that it's hard times. Like the first thing to recognize is that it's not an easy time. Like it might feel okay a lot of the times that, hey, we wake up and we have breakfast and we do X, Y, and Z, but it's still not the same. And accepting that reality allows you to kind of know that, okay, I'm having this underlying stress that could have kind of been one month, but now it's like almost a year and don't know how long it lasts and kind of being open about that. And then from there on, really kind of figuring out what is causing me more stress and how am I dealing with it and where I go with it. In terms of like, I think the extreme ends that you mentioned, I think it's important to note that it's good to have a balance too. 
Like a lot of mm-hmm. the times in my practice, if I see a client of mine hasn't gone out and they're like super isolated and super cautious and everything, obviously with the risk and everything, I, I say kind of like, hey, we need to like change something because doing so much of that kind of puts you in bad place of like kind of the behavior puts you in a place of like anxiety, depression, sadness, because as humans, we do need that social interaction. We need that kind of going outside. We're not made to be inside all the time. And then for the people who are like out there and doing a lot, it's just kind of bringing back to the reality of how are you taking care of yourself? How are you kind of taking care of others? Kind of that would be the kind of the the way I would kind of... Has there been a massive shift in the the reaction and what what people are talking to you about since COVID happened. Is everything now related to COVID? Are you still seeing similar patterns of behaviour and issues that people are having to resolve just in the context of COVID? Or are you have is COVID reset, let's say, reset the bar? It's a great question because now that I reflect on it, I think COVID has impacted, but it's not the main thing people talk about. So the underlying issues are still there. It gets kind of either worse or better, right? Kind of, I think as it, it's just a COVID is in background, the pandemic, but like a lot of the times people are noticing a lot of strengths that they had that they didn't. So it allows them kind of really reflect on their resiliency a lot more. And so then apply it to their kind of underlying problems that they came with, right? Like finding a job or focusing on X, Y, and Z, because if they can handle this, what else can they handle, right? Exactly, yeah. And then on the other hand side, I think it's it's that the other piece that it's important to take apart is COVID has caused a lot of like pauses in terms of like kind of work, you know, has been difficult. People have gone laid up. People are having a hard time finding jobs. People don't feel comfortable going to work with some kind of kind of. Uh, kind of uh, requests come up and they don't know what to do about it. And then, so those things have like kind of parallel to their kind of presenting problems have impacted a lot more. Relationships, like if someone is coming in for a relationship issue as COVID either has made it worse or kind of has come in the way, how to handle it, you know? So I think it can go all angles. I suppose traditionally, the perspective you have of a therapist is the classic sort of couch and box of tissues and, you know, the therapist and the patient. How have you felt the shift going online, Tara? Has it worked for you? It does work for me, <laughs> surprisingly enough, because I was one of those that was pretty much like, I, I never, I would never go online. Like, what is that? Like, I really value the in-person therapy and the idea of having someone in my office. So we have that presence. But after you get forced to do some new things, you recognize that this too can work. And, and it actually is sometimes the benefit of a lot of people, right? Because with this way of doing virtual, a lot of people have as kind of going back to your first, one of your first questions, like access, easier access. Like they can get to your appointment more on time. They have more flexibility in kind of seeing you and there's less of avoidance. I see mm-hmm. a like almost no to very little cancellation online than I saw in person. 
So um, because like kind of you don't have the traffic excuse, you don't have like I got stuck in an interview kind of like or, you know, and so people when they're actually doing it, they really commit to it and it's worked better. Mm-hmm. But I have to say, although I love it and it's been great, I do miss in, in person as well. So once the world opens up, it's one of those experiences where I'm definitely going to have both where I do the in-person, which I enjoy and love. And I would offer it online as well to help some people who actually use it, utilize it better. Okay. Mehdi, you work for a firm here in New York where you focus on providing what I believe is a wide range of transactions involving technology, intellectual property, as you already said, uh, mergers, acquisitions, licenses, strategic advice for a whole range of large blue chip uh, clients. Thinking, not knowing a lot about what you do, other than in particular in relation to this, but I can imagine, given looking at some of the deals that you've been part of, it must have been an absolutely fascinating year in terms of just seeing the changes that have happened during the year. But at the same time, it must be massively disruptive to a way of working that presumably has typically been around a boardroom table and has been working in close-knit, long hours with teams of people. So I'd love you just to sort of reflect on the positives and the negatives of what have happened. And what I will say is that Scott Galloway talks about that we've been in this period where there's been a a great accelerant of existing trends. Like your perspective in terms of have you seen these accelerants of trends happening in your in your industry and your perspective? Because you see, you see, you look across a lot of really interesting industries. And because you focus on technology as well, you must have a, a good sense of that. So, it's an interesting question. And so, a few thoughts. So, on on my practice and the firm first. So, we are one of those firms, as you said. We do. We everyone everyone used to come in. We like to work in small teams. And I personally, going up in the firm, you know, as a junior associate and further on, I was a big beneficiary of that in-person environment because you get to, you know, you can do a lot of substantive learning remotely and reading things, but there's a lot of soft skills in a business like ours, how to deliver a bad message to a client, how to prepare for a particularly a climactic meeting, how to mentor, how to help someone overcome a difficult situation, which a lot of them happen in person by observing how others handle it. And a lot of that is hard to do over Zoom because, you know, when people are preparing for a Zoom call, they don't have their camera on. So when you're as an associate sitting at home, also preparing, you don't see what they're doing. You don't hear their thoughts. And so I do, I, I was quite concerned in the beginning about how this whole thing was going to go. But as Tara said, you know, you, you get, you learn how, how flexible we all are and how we can adjust. And there are lots of companies and practices that have taken hold that I think have helped everyone deal with the situation that have mitigated the impact. I still personally look forward to going back to the office. And I think a lot of our associates and other partners do too, because I think we recognize while in the short term, this worked because frankly, a lot of relationships existed. And so while they're starting to fade a bit, they're still there. But, you know, as we recruit more and more associates who come to the firm who would have never met any of us, who would have never had coffee with us, who would have never had lunch with us, you can see how 
organizationally, it's going to present some pretty unusual challenges. And overall, I think it'll be to the detriment of the whole. And so, you know, on the, so that's, that's kind of how it's been at the firm. I think a lot of our folks have been handling it okay, like Tara said. Unfortunately, and I know we're going to talk about this in a bit, the legal profession, especially big law, the large law firms are not great at mental health. They've never been. Mm-hmm. And, and although they're working on it and I'm trying to do what I can at the firm to push the firm in that direction, it's, it's not top of mind for a lot of people. It's an, it's an, it's an industry that tends to value, you know, being tough and overcoming yeah. things and, you know, openly talking about mental health challenges isn't cool, although it's changing. And so, yeah, yet, as Tara says, exactly. And so I think this was one of those times where it presented that challenge because a lot of, I think, our associates partners were having difficulties balancing and figuring out, you know, you have young kids at home and you're having to work. How does that work? You know, work mm-hmm. never stops now. You know, we always have difficult hours, but the fact that you're working from home, which means you can wake up and jump on the computer and, you know, go have lunch with your child and jump back on a conference call. And maybe you're changing their diapers while listening to a call on mute, you know, just, just lots of boundaries being crossed. And I think people were struggling and not openly talking about it a lot. And so I think a lot of that also makes people want to go back to the normal. But it's an industry or a profession that's notoriously notorious for its long hours and for junior associates working crazy hours, similar to in medicine. So in a way, some people must have welcomed it to be able to just do that those long hours from home and not have to worry about the commute. For sure. Presumably there's both the pros and the cons to it that some people have embraced and it's been it's been good for Yeah, no, absolutely. And and I felt it too, you know, not having a commute being able to, even when you're working hard, even if you have a 15-minute break, instead of sitting at my desk and, you know, I don't know, reading articles online or something, to be able to come out and have a conversation with Tara or, you know, we, we have a young boy, to spend 15 minutes with him is so much more gratifying than the kinds of breaks I was taking at work. So I totally sympathize with that. And I think a lot of our associates have had that. But, you know, it's, it's a mix, because I also, I do feel personally even more isolated. I feel less energetic because I think just getting dressed up and getting out of the house and just looking at the hustle and bustle of New York City and saying hi to a few people or grabbing a cup of coffee, it gives you energy, it gives you positivity, it gives you motivation, which just getting up from the couch and sitting in front of a computer does, doesn't. So I, but I totally acknowledge the the positives. And I think it's going to present an inflection point for the legal mm-hmm. profession, which is what do we do in the long term? And I think yeah. you know, to your question about accelerants of existing trends, I think there was already this trend and desire to provide flexibility and ability to work from mm-hmm. home. And I think I'm, I'm curious to see what happens because you know, what I hear, different firms are planning on handling it very differently. There are some firms who I think we are a part of who are, you know, for the lack of a better word, old school, but I think in a good way, mm-hmm. who, who I think there will be strong desire across the organization to snap back to the pre-COVID world as much as possible. I don't think we're going to ever snap back completely, but I think we'll be, you know, 90%, something like that in person. 
And then there are other law firms who see this as an opportunity for a number of reasons to actually go to a partial in-person, partial remote model, both because it provides flexibility for some folks, but also, frankly, because real estate is a major cost of running large law firms and it allows them to have a lot less real estate or even have offices in less desirable places because less people are going to them. So instead of having really expensive rent in midtown Manhattan or downtown San Francisco, maybe you can have an office in New Jersey or you can have an office in, you know, one of the suburbs outside San Francisco and people won't mind. So I think some law firms are going to take advantage of this opportunity to recalibrate the employee demands about office space. And so, and I'm curious to see what that means for them in the long run, because I think while in the short term, you could save money, you know, Tara and I talk about these a lot, but I do really wonder what that does to kind of the fabric of the firm. Are people mm. really kind of, are your associates kind of mercenaries, which means if another law firm comes and gives them an extra 10 bucks, they're like, yeah, I'm working from home anyway, see ya. You know, I'll just I'll log into a different dot Zoom, you know, email address or whatever. Whereas right now there's a lot of institutional, I wouldn't call it loyalty because it's still a job, but there's a lot of institutional friction and and people you know and things you care about beyond just sitting at your home and typing away. And so I do wonder what that means for those law firms to have essentially a bunch of folks who don't really feel part of the whole and are just sitting on the outside. And I think it will affect training. It will affect career progression. I think it will have a lot of effects that I'm not sure a lot of the firms are thinking through. A couple of questions on that as you're talking. I spoke to uh, an ex-lawyer when I used to work at McCann. I used a law firm in London called Lewis Silken. And one of the partners there has just moved to the BBC and he runs a team of about 18 lawyers at the BBC dealing with intellectual property and the likes. And he was saying the BBC have made a decision. They're going back. Once the government, obviously, in the UK makes provisions for it, BBC has said the maximum anyone needs to go into the office four days a week. The minimum, two. But they don't want people going in to work the way they used to work. What they're wanting them to do is go in and create and engineer these social interactions, these water cooler moments that are absolutely pivotal to creating the serendipitous moments of sparking ideas, bringing, whether it be an engineer coming together with a designer or a, a script writer with a producer, whatever, where ideas flow and come out of nowhere. So I thought that was really interesting in terms of, and I can see that in a creative environment, whether it be an agency or a design studio or a, a, an organization like the BBC. But where did those, how important are water cooler serendipity moments in law firms? They, they're really important. And I'll give you some examples. So, you know, to the, the law firm I'm at has about a thousand lawyers across several offices, but our headquarters are in New York. There's about 500 mm-hmm. lawyers in New York. And there's a, you know, a lot of people are doing different things. And a lot of times you don't even know what people are doing. So, you know, like sometimes you'll be walking around and, you know, you, you run into, you know, I've been at the firm for a long time, so I know a lot of people. And I'd be like, hey, what's going on? You know, what are you working on? And he'd be like, oh, we're doing this thing for this client. I was like, really? I didn't even know we, like, as a firm, we did that. And what it does is, you know, one of the big things about a firm like us is cross-selling is a really good opportunity, right? So let's say yeah. I have a client 
and who I like, obviously they like me and they have a lot of respect for me. I hear about a lot of other problems they have. And the smaller, the better business development things we always talk about, instead of trying to grab new clients, is make sure the existing clients you have, you can provide them service on a wide range. And so knowing what everyone else at the firm does, and, and not just at a hypothetical level, like we have pages on our website about all the different things we do, great. But actually understanding examples of what it is what it is we do in each space really allows you to do the cross-selling, which is when you talk to the mm-hmm. client, you're like, oh, they have that problem. I know exactly what the firm does it well. Here are a couple of examples of how they do it well, and it allows you to do that. So a lot of that you miss in a, in a Zoom environment. We try as a firm to have events where people present on their work, and so there's some of that being replicated in Zoom, but it's hard to do in a firm like us that has so many lawyers with nuanced practices. You can't have mm-hmm. that many presentations. So I will. I think going back to the firm will really help with that. You run into people at lunch who, you know, I've had so many circumstances where someone comes to me and he's like, I have a dumb IP question, you know, because <laughs> I was on this uh, call with a client and they asked me something. And we'll talk about it. It turns out almost never it was dumb. And actually there's, there's a real issue there. And we talk to the client and it results in a good assignment and an interesting matter, which not having me in the in the cafeteria means the transaction cost of asking that question is higher because they have to actually email me and be like, hey, are you available for a Zoom? Which means for a lot of people who think those questions are dumb, they just don't ask them. And so, which means all those opportunities, even if it was one out of three, are lost. And so mm-hmm. I, think, I think going back to the office for us will be impactful. To your point, I think fields that are creative, product design, will probably feel this even more. You know, I have a number of friends who work at tech companies in the in the Bay Area, Google and et cetera. And, you know, they actually think a lot about, for example, where the cafeteria is on campus so that as people are walking to cafeteria from different buildings, they run into each other. And yeah. they believe a lot of good collaborative ideas these days in the 21st century don't come from within one discipline, but cross-disciplinary. So the idea of having designers and engineers running to each other, having the ad people and the software design people run into each other results in a lot of good collaboration. So I can imagine missing that is probably even more impactful for them than it is for us, but it's still impactful mm-hmm. for us and something, one of the mm-hmm. main reasons we all want to get back to in person. Okay. We so I touched on earlier that this mental health stigma is to a large degree dissipating thanks to COVID, bringing it more out into the open and let as more and more people acknowledge that it's okay not to be okay. Question for both of you, will or should organisations be investing actively in mental health services to support their staff in the way that many organisations have had large training budgets, productivity training, time management, negotiating skills? Is mental health the next frontier of driving? If you look at it purely in a, from a productivity standpoint, is it just the way to get better bottom line because you're going to have higher productivity? Or is there a responsibility for organizations because of things like COVID anxiety and climate anxiety that a lot of people deal with to support their staff in a way to help them? and say this is organizational responsibility. And, and one particular thing I'll throw in is I'm spending a lot of time at the moment talking to restaurateurs who are dealing you know, with the, being decimated by COVID. And mental health in the restaurant and the hospitality industry is, is 
horrific. And they are desperate to find some resource and support across the industry for their staff and their workers. So I just love your your joint perspectives. Tara, you as obviously as a solopreneur doing your own, but you must speak to people in organisations. And Medi, you presumably have a, a sense both from the law sector, legal sector, but also some of the clients that you represent as well. Yeah, absolutely. Why don't I, I'll start first and I'll turn over to you. I think I think it's imperative that every organization have deep training programs, resources, et cetera, for mental health for a number of reasons. So the first one is the simple, as an organization, it's a good objective to have to have happy employees, mm. not just even necessarily for the bottom line, although it will certainly help the bottom line, but just because it is a better place to work when people are happy and people feel supported. And also you can attract better talent if you're the kind of place that everyone says they care about these things. It's a good organizational message goal to have. So, but that, that, I think that's the first and most important reason, but honestly, it also makes a lot of business sense right? Mm -hmm. You help prevent some of your star employees from getting burnout or from feeling supported, from extracting more out of their own efforts because they feel more valued. They are dealing with anxiety better. All of that stuff will help the bottom line. And it's one of the issues that actually, so I'll give you examples about top law firms. We We as an organization and as a class of organizations deal with this a lot. Because what happens, the typical story is, you know, we're, we're you know, highly ranked law firm, et cetera. And so we tend to be able to hire really good law students from really good law schools who, in order to have gotten to a really good law school, typically went to a really good college and did really well. And in order to have gotten to a really good college and have done well, they went to a really <laughs> good high school and did well. So the typical story is someone comes to the firm you know, having never gotten anything but A's in their life, everyone feels like the smartest man in the room. And they get to a law firm, which is, as you know, work hours are tough. The substance of our work is tough. The competition within the firm is tough because you look around, you see what everyone else is doing. And it's, it's like clockwork. Somewhere around the end of year one, beginning of year two, a bunch of them hit a wall where for the first time, self-doubt creeps in and you're like, what is this? Mm-hmm. I've never, never dealt with this. What is it? I don't feel like I know what I'm doing or I don't, I feel inadequate. I feel unhappy. There's this weird feeling, you know, a lot of it, frankly, people in other industries or other fields have always felt and have frankly have learned how to deal with at a young age. But by essentially being lucky and being, being smart, They've kind of coasted through it and they hit it at the firm. And law firms as a class not being good at mental health, unfortunately, what ends up happening is a portion of these guys decides law was just wrong. And so they end up leaving the law. A portion of them decide law firms, big law firms are wrong. It's just not my thing because this this can't be a normal feeling. I feel horrible. This has got to be. So they leave. Some of them decide this firm is wrong, right? Maybe there's another firm I need to go try. And some of them just get burnt out. They get depressed. They kind of, you can see them clam up and they go into their own shell. All of it is because they're having to deal with anxiety and self-doubt and confidence issues Mm -hmm. for the first real time in their life. And they just don't know what to do with it. 
And so one of the things I've been trying to do at our firm, and which our firm I think does relatively well at, we've been doing a lot of work. Tara has been having discussions with us and about we really need to provide tools. We need to make sure they understand this is normal. A lot of people feel this. I, as a partner, share how I had a lot of these things because a lot of the associates look at me now and they've told me this. They're like, oh, Maddie, I wish we were like you. You seem to just coast above it all and nothing impacts you. And I'm like, it's not true at all. When I was a second Mm -hmm. year, I remember being in my office, like Mm -hmm. wanting to hide under my desk because I was so freaked out. And it's just a tool. It's like looking at someone who's very athletic and being like, wow, they're just born differently. It's like, no, they've been going to the gym and exercising and training for years. And so the same thing that has to, the same kind of, I think, mentality has to kick in for mental health, which is these are skills. These are tools that you can learn, you can practice that, and you can become better at. You will never not feel anxiety. You will never not sometimes doubt yourself, but you learn how to cope with it. You learn how to overcome it. You learn how to even use things like anxiety to your advantage because maybe it gives you more energy and you can direct it in the right way. But I think it really needs to have programs and law firms for a whole lose a lot of talent because of Mm -hmm. this issue because they get to, there's usually a bump around that when you come early second year, there's another bump when you become a senior associate, when you're like in charge of matters now. And a lot of people hit the wall again, thinking, am I ready? Am I comfortable taking on this responsibility? And I think if the firms provided the right mental health framework, you would both help them on a humanistic individual level, but also as an organization, you would be able to maintain a lot more of the talent and be better off for the bottom line. Mm -hmm. Interesting. I think I second everything Medi said well, so I agree with all of that. The picture that I would give is actually from my experience, I've seen people in college and law school and now going to law firms and lawyers, like, you know, partners and like with every other industry as well to answer the question where, so I think just to follow up on what Mehdi said, I think it's essential. I think it is something that as a society, we lack that there mm-hmm. has been such low influence in people recognizing how important it is for them to focus on mental health in colleges in kind of graduate schools and in kind of corporate worlds, especially in a world like the U.S., where kind of everyone is moving towards achieving something and it's so reinforced and it's it's sad but also I think to your point, I think COVID brought it up a little bit about the stigma and actually people talking about it. But I'm I'm one of I'm a little skeptical that once kind of things go back to normal, people still talk about it. So I think it's an important task on behalf of all of us. I always say to Medi that we need to advocate for people to come out more and talk about it and to corporation and to kind of, I strongly um, advise people to reach out and talk about it. And we have talks and hours of talks about, you know, expressing how kind of all of this is impacting them because kind of to your point right now, people are like, let's say they're not having offices, right? We were just talking about how, you know, people might just go remote a lot of the times or half the time. So That means there's a lot of money left to be spent, right? Because they're saving on that. But, you know, not going to the office is actually a mental health barrier, 
because, mm-hmm. you know, although it can kind of save some of the kind of the nitty gritty of like getting ready, going up, like doing a lot of those stuff or commute, being at home with your kids or family, it could be good. But on the other hand, it has a lot of downsides of kind of impacting your mental health because just going outside and doing things can make you feel better. I think Mary mentioned that a little bit earlier and not having to do that kind of impacts you. So in the long term, if there is no kind of care for mental health or people are not talking about it and they're all going remote, which has happened in the past year, it's going to have a long-term negative effect on humans, right? Mm -hmm. So I think it's, it's essential for people to come together to know that it's, it's like, you know, I think I've noticed that there's a change in trend where a lot of corporation kind of started caring about health and like putting good foods in cafeterias Mm. and making sure there's nutrition on site. Like physical health is like a little bit easier now to talk about. I think it has to be something that eventually mental health is something both for colleges and corporations to be like, oh yeah, like we understand you might having a hard time and we can help you with that. Because I think going back to what Mehdi said too, I think it's not only helps with the attrition rate, like people wouldn't like leave, but also helps them like not to spend much on medical leave and health issues that could come from mental health impacts on the people. Because a lot of the times people kind of blame their um, kind of health, mental health stuff under kind of physical stuff, like kind of fatigue and just pain. And it comes out in so many ways. So it's, it's all in all to their benefit too. So are we saying there's going to be a new C-level position, the CRO, the Chief Resilience Officer. Oh, I would, I would love that. I, I think, to be honest, if that day comes, Mark, I would be kind of like, I would be celebrating because I, I see the trend shifting, but I think it needs to shift big, both for colleges and um, corporation, big time. I mean, the thing I'm missing most is I'm waiting for the. Uh, series billions to kick in again. Yeah, I know. But you know, you got you know Wendy in the in Axel's firm. I mean, there's evidence that you know the, the enlightened organisations do this. So hopefully, this if there's going to be one thing that comes out of COVID, that the organisations will become more enlightened and will take the lead and see it as a competitor. See it from a. I mean, I know it shouldn't be seen as a bottom line thing, but we live in a capitalist society, so maybe it's a way to sell it to organisations is competitive advantage. Yeah, totally agree. And I think, you know, the, the Billions is a good example. And I think there are lots of tech companies who do that. Google, I think, has staff psychologists. and and But there's another group of organizations, by the way, that it reminded us, Tara was talking. I think colleges and graduate schools need to do a much better job of this, honestly. Mm-hmm. I think it's a, it's a shame. It's a real shame that you graduate from college, you graduate from you know, PhD program, for me, JD program. And there's never a serious class or training about mental health. That should be there. These are, you're preparing them to be professionals. One of the main things a professional needs to do is how to deal with these things. It falls to the employers. And I think some employers do a great job of it. And I'm not saying employers shouldn't, but I've always been surprised in this day and age. I still talk to law law school graduates or college graduates. Did you have any course? Did you have any trains? Like, no, you obviously, you can go to the health center and, you know, if you have an issue, but there's no broad-based training. like And so I'm always surprised by that. And I think colleges and graduate schools really need to do better. It's a skill 
that people need to arrive with in their professions. Otherwise, you know, some of them will just uh, fall through the cracks. We interviewed a guest. I can't remember who, I should remember who it was. But they said if, if meditation was taught in schools from age eight, we wouldn't have any med- mental health issues and we wouldn't be dealing with uh, conflict in society. Yeah, no, honestly, so. yeah. Meditation, mindfulness, you know, a lot of it is you find you find professionals who in their, you know, I have a lot of coworkers who in their mid-20s or early 30s are for the first time learning about what mindfulness is. Like, oh, maybe I shouldn't listen to a YouTube clip and work and have lunch. You know, that's <laughs> not great for mental health because I'm, I'm overtaxing my brain and also not enjoying either of the three things I'm doing. But it's, it's, not, been, it's not even a concept that's introduced to them because essentially right now, unless you seek this stuff out, it's not taught to you anywhere. And I think that paradigm needs to shift somewhere where just like you said, we learn civics and we learn, you know, you you learn lots of things in school that aren't directly relevant to every career. This will be directly relevant for everyone. This should be taught, yeah, to your point, Mark, maybe even not colleges and universities, but high schools and and grades below. Absolutely. Okay. Chief uh, Resilience Officer, look out. If there's a crossover, and let's say you come together and talk about your your two areas of interest, it seems to be for me in where technology meets neuroscience. And we're clearly living in a fascinating time in history where things like genetic modifications are possible, machine brain interfaces are being developed by Elon Musk and Neuralink, the potential to for humanity, but also the risk to humanity from advances in AI and machine learning may not be as reported or discussed enough in our corporations as maybe they should be. I'd love your joint perspective as both professionals where we might be in 10 years with these these big opportunities and threats to to humanity, but also as parents of a a young child, how you think about, and and your, your recommendations to other parents as well, is how to think about not just the here and now, but where these children are going to be in 10 or 15 years time when artificial intelligence has completely reorientated the nature of work and the domain of work in such a way that what would, how do you guide these children to thrive and survive in a very different world than we're living in today? And it might not be 10 years, maybe it's going to be 20, but it's clearly going to be radically different to what it is today. I'll share my thoughts. I've, I've thought about this a lot. So I think from an, from an economic perspective, I think what AI machine learning are going to do, are they're going to accelerate the trend toward, I think if you're a kind of person, if you're in an industry where the, your main value add is timely crunching of simple tasks, I think your job is likely to be displaced. So, and that in every industry means different things, right? So for in in, in law, if you are the type of lawyer who's mostly taking a form and making minor adjustments to it, so you see legal Zoom, yeah, those are going to be gone, right? Drafting NDAs, drafting simple trademark applications or other simple transactional documents, that that work is gone. 
So if you're in those practices, it's time to evaluate how to evolve to a more complex practice that's not so easily replaced. And this is in the short term, right? AI and machine learning with enough time and enough potential, they could replace a lot of what we do, but that's hard to it's hard to get your arms around today. But in the near term, I think things that are that simple and mechanistic are going to get displaced. Now, when it comes to, I think, things like our, our kids, I'm of kind of two minds. On the one hand, I think it's important to pay attention to these things and make sure your kids are prepared. On the other hand, I feel like this story has been told before. You know, a lot of our worries existed in the industrial revolution. People <laughs> thought humanity was over and machines were going to take over. And you've had this story told a few times. And I think all the, I, I, I think all it really means for our kids is they'll frankly operate as a, at a more brainy and evolved creatures than we will. A lot of menial tasks will be gone. A lot of simple calculations. You know, we had, I remember when I was in high school, graphing calculators came out for the first time, you know, the TI-86. And, yeah. and I remember a lot of parents were freaked out. Our kids aren't going to know how to add and they're not going to know how to multiply. And it's like, yeah, that's true. Maybe our generation, you know, my mom can do things with her hand a lot faster than I could in math because I had a calculator. But that means it freed up my mind to learn uh, second order and third order abstraction things that my mom didn't have as much time for. And so I think our mm-hmm. kids will likely just continue that trend. More and more things that we spend our time doing will be done by them and that will be done by algorithms and then they can focus on other things. So I think it's, I'm not suggesting that, that we should ignore the trend or, oh, our kids will be fine, don't worry about it. Because part of the reason why we were fine is because our parents worried about it and there were countermeasures yeah. and you know screen time, for example, as an effort to balance being on your iPhone or iPad for too long. So I think we as the adults of this generation owe it to our kids to think about it and think about how to balance it for them. But I feel like in the long run, they'll figure it out. Tara? You know, you can see the difference between his brain and my brain because I think (laughs) what he says calms my nerves in terms of like the advancements in technology and how it's going to benefit our kids, which I love. But on the other hand, hand side, I mean, as a psychologist and as someone who has a young boy and also kind of give advices out for other parents, I think it's essential to recognize the impact that this will have and this, this shift in our lives in the next 10, 20 years. And once you recognize it, also really focus on what has benefited humans for so long, which is actual interactions, actual kind of experiences with materials and with the environment. So while these things are going on and it's super awesome that they're learning and they will learn, and I don't think we can stop our little boy wanting to kind of get on those for so long, but also there's kind of, I think, um, from my perspective, has to be this effort to really make sure he is exposed to other things such as like how to kind of make blocks with wood and how to be creative around using like, I don't know, something in the street and kind of do some creative work with it. Because at the end of the day, you need your five senses for all of that. And it doesn't come through a computer screen or anything else. Where do I see us in 10, 15, 20 years with all this stuff? I don't know. I'm one of those that I'd like to not for 
foresee the future because I tend to worry at times about it. And I use my own advice. It's just like, you know, I deal with it when it happens. And, you know, in our field, I think kind of Mehdi mentioned, like some of their works might be kind of given to technology and some other machines might take care of it. In my field, I know there's a talk about it that people can talk to a therapist online and like the computer can respond. At the end of the day, I'm a full believer that you need a human to have a human experience. And no matter how much these computers get advanced, I would be so surprised to see the impact that they would have compared to another human being in front of you and really hearing you and giving you answers. So kind of that's where I am with this whole advancement. Okay. Well, just before we get to the quick questions, we always ask about serendipity. And where it's played a part in your journey? I think the serendipitous part of our journey is uh, us crossing paths. I think, you know, kind of, you would think like two people who were born and raised in Iran and at age 16 moved to here, to the U.S., like they would have similar experiences or like kind of at one point, like know the lives that each have lived. But really, and kind of the funny thing is like we could have been at the schools at the same time, but we chose different schools. So we actually weren't. And and just kind of that brought us together and I think the the fact that he's such an engineer and I'm such a kind of a behaviorist, humanistic, <laughs> like kind of really went well in terms of like us working together and being with each other and like helping a little boy kind of be raised in such a city, right? Yeah, totally. Yeah. I totally agree with that. And, you know, serendipities is an interesting thing because, you know, if you look at, I think if you had asked, you know, I know that people like to ask this question, like, where do you see yourself in 10 years? I think if you had asked me that at any point in my life, whatever I had said would have been wrong. Like now in hindsight, <laughs> it's, it's, it's incredible. And because, uh, and, you know, if you had told me when I was in, in engineering school that I would have gone to law school and I would have gone to a big law firm and in New York City, it, it all seemed I would have bet I would have given you great odds that that would not have happened. And, and so I think, so there's a lot of things in life that I think happen by, by chance. So for me, you know, that one professor who, for whatever reason, took the time and interest to tell me, hey, have you thought about law school? And, you know, had paid enough attention to my tendencies mm-hmm. in class to identify an opportunity and kind of set me down this path, which, you know, has completely changed my life. You know, me meeting Tara us deciding to move to New York based on a lot of random factors. There's just been so much. I think you could put a lot of that to randomness, but I actually think, I think these things happen in a lot of people's lives. And the, the, the way we've lived is always kind of let the chips fall where they may make the decisions that are right in front of you based on the best information you have, and then move on to the next one. And then you'll be amazed how this decision tree will just take you to really weird places. And so I have, you know, I talk to some law students now who are like, oh, you know, what did you think about making partner in the beginning and how hard is it? And I was like, I didn't think about that. And I would tell you not to. That's that decision's not in front of you. The decision in front of you is which firm are you going to go to out of law school that's going to teach you and be a good environment for the first two years. 
And then when the first two years are done, you have the opportunity to stay or go somewhere else, evaluate that decision and make the right one. And then another two years and another two years. And then as the decisions come, just make them and just see where life takes you. Because to me, that's a much easier way to live than having to plan 10 years down the road, which, like I said, if I had done, I would have had to throw all those plans out because my life is completely... Great answer. Okay. Quick fire questions. Uh, what principles do you stand by? Incredibly difficult question, as, especially as a quick fire. There's so many principles. But I, you know, just a, a couple of things that I've just found in life are really helpful. I honestly think just being kind and considerate goes a really long way. And it's, it's really hard to do. I sound so simple, of course, but it's really in every day, you know, someone, and you know, an associate sends you work product that sucks, your first reaction is, oh, man, well, you know, why did they do that? But it's just, just remember, you don't know what they're going through. You know what kind of day they had. Doesn't mean you don't give them feedback. Doesn't mean you don't try to steer them in the right direction. But be kind and considerate. There are a few exceptions in life. Maybe someone is really horrible to you and you have to cut them out of your life. But for the most part, people are doing their best. People are trying their best. Being, I think in, it, it, it makes your short-term better and it makes your long-term better. People remember, people will reciprocate. To me, that's one of the most important things. I can't believe you said my principle. Did I? We didn't talk about it before. Yeah, I think mine was that too. But I would say like treat others how you like to be treated. Kind of that's what I would abide by and go. I think it definitely goes with a kindness and peace, but really understanding, a lens of understanding of really understanding others, understanding yourselves and being kind and really mm -hmm. going with the angle of treat everyone the way you like to be treated always. It's funny, in the year 2000, one of the major TV channels in the UK, Channel 4, did a poll, multi-generational, multi-faith, asking people what their most important rule for life was. And it was do unto others as you would be done by across the different groups. So there you go. What hard choices... What hard choices have you had to make that might have been tough at the time, but you look back, they were the right decision? I think we've had a lot of tough choices. I think for me, the one that comes to mind is moving to the U.S. out of high school because, and it's actually a decision that was harder in hindsight than at the time. You know, I was 16. I wasn't that thoughtful, but, you know, it had a tremendous impact on my family. I had a young sister who was very close to me who as I learned after I moved, had a very difficult time dealing with my departure, who, which I had not appreciated. And, and for me, you know, I cut ties from my family, from all my friends in Iran, had to make new friends, had to deal with lots of sort of identity crises in the U.S. As a, as a kid from Iran, having to learn what life in the U.S. was for a teenager, which was very different than I had. So th that decision was a very hard one to come to the U.S., but obviously in hindsight, it was the most transformative decision of my life, of my life, and one I definitely wouldn't take back. I think mine would be there was a point in my graduate school where I questioned kind of being in the psychology field as a psychotherapist, and I decided to kind of join the corporate world. So, and that hard decision would make me either apply to jobs out of um, graduate school or the path would have been, I would go to fellowship and postdoctoral or just kind of apply to jobs outside just a corporate world. And there was a good couple months where I seriously considered it. 
And I was a gung-ho about applying to management consulting. I got a bunch of interviews. I was really going that path, leaving. I did not apply for any postdoc, which to the surprise of all my mentors and my chairs and the kind of the work I was doing, they were like shocked because kind of the, I was so involved in it and I really loved the work. But I think Burnout was speaking more than myself. And at the time, Mary was actually supporting me to kind of do what I think is right, what I feel was right, which that felt like. And and that hard choice was kind of going on. I was shifting. And there was a moment where I actually got a job offer. And the next day, and I didn't apply to postdoc. And I got an email from a fellow, from an externship place where actually they asked, why didn't I apply for the fellowship? And I was like, is there still opening? And they're like, yes, there's one and we're keeping it for you without me even applying. And then I called Mehdi. I was like, hey, what do you think? I have this job offer and there's this fellow. Should I stick to the path I chose or should I just, you know, and that was the hardest jo- a choice. And when I made it and I emailed back, I was like, yes, I'll take the fellowship. And I, I turned on the job to this day. I'm appreciative mm-hmm. of the choice that I've made and trusting the, my gut and what works and, you know, the kind of not kind of acting on emotions and not giving into mm-hmm. burnout and actually doing what you're, you really work hard for. Well, I just wanted to add a thought to that because it really resonated with me. It's incredible how people who are seemingly successful in their jobs and are happy, how close they got to leaving it all together at some point. I, Tara knows I was burnt out at least twice, but once really badly, very close to leaving the firm, leaving big law altogether. Which, like I said, when I talk to some junior associates now, they feel like I was built for this or something. You know, like, oh, you look like the kind of guy who was like always going to do this. I was like, you have no idea how close I was to completely leaving this. So, I, And I think it's a story I've heard a lot from lots of different clients and mm-hmm. different folks, which is, so it's, it's, you know, having difficulty with a job or having thoughts about leaving which a, a job does not necessarily mean you will not be good at it and, and end up really enjoying it. Okay. Where do you go to discover new ideas in COVID, (laughs) in lockdown or not lockdown? I have a few favorite journals and magazines that I get a Mm -hmm. lot of ideas about and not necessarily about law because, you know, law has its own publications and conferences. So I, I do those. But I love the Harvard Business Review, the MIT Technology Review, and The Economist. And they, they provide a lot of food for thought and things that are either directly or indirectly apply to my job, not just as a lawyer, but as a manager, as a partner, as a senior person in an, or, in an organization, as well as to challenges that our clients feel sometimes it allows me to be smart and have non-legal conversations with them about organizational issues, which is a, always a good thing. So that those are the three I go to most often. I would say books. <laughs> yeah. And for me, it's mainly books, given either fictional novels to actual like self-help books and authors that I really enjoy reading their books. But to be honest, and it might be a silly answer too, but my baby boy too gives me so many ideas. Just witnessing him in so many different stances of emotional development and seeing how he deals with it. I see a lot that I want to learn more and read about more because I think it speaks to the field that I'm in and also to the world that we live in. Okay. What's one problem? That's worth solving. 
climate change. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, I, I have so many. You know, top of mind, based on what we talked about, I, I do think mental health is would honestly be my answer, even if we hadn't talked about it. It's kind of the cause I think about the most at, at the firm, and I've tried to be a resource to a number of our associates. But I do think mental health, you know, for, from my point of view, mental health in the field of law is definitely something that is worth solving and I actually think is not that hard to solve. So it's achievable in a short period of time. You know, things like climate change, I think it's a fantastic answer, but frankly, so many impediments to solving that, that's a big problem, but obviously worth solving. This one, I think, is not that hard to solve. We really should, as a, as a, a yeah, as a profession, we should be able to, we should be able to do much better on this. Okay. This question, four people from history you'd invite round to dinner in your apartment to help you solve uh, and create a plan for the better future. You get two each. So I'll, I'll go. So mostly because Sotara knows this about me. I like drama and I like, I like to have, you know, I think uncomfortable conversations can be fun. I would want two people from like totally different backgrounds and way of thinking. So maybe someone like a Gandhi on the one hand and, you know, a, a hardcore Keynesian economist like Keynes himself from the other side to just (laughs) see how, because I think both of their perspectives are necessary to solve the problems of the world. And so to have that type of dialogue and have both of their thoughts potentially put into an idea, I think that would be a lot of fun. Well, it's interesting you picked a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, can, Can they be someone from this time too, but still at the table? Why not? History. Because, because I love history and I was so kind of mesmerized by the kind of learning about him. But one would be John Adams. I really would like to know and have dinner with him, get his sense. And the other one that I would, it's Audrey Hepburn. I would like, uh-huh. love to have dinner with her. Because, you know, the humanitarian aspect of her life was so mm-hmm. beautiful. She was so caring and kind, given her kind of uh, fame. I just, I would love to learn from her experience in those times, I'm sure. It was. Yeah, that would be a, a very diverse and interesting dinner party. Yeah, I know. Okay, what's a question no one asks you, but you wish they would? Hmm. That's a hard question. Yeah, that's a tough question. I, I generally wish people asked more emotional questions in real life than they do. I generally wish for conversations to have more emotional weights than they do. I remember when we were little, not little, when I was in college, we had one gathering at my house. We used to have dinner parties in my apartment when I was single. And and someone just started asking really emotionally charged questions. Like, what's the saddest moment of your childhood? Or you know, why, are, why is this person your closest friend? Or something mm-hmm. like that. And I actually found that conversation so enjoyable and we got to know each other so much better through one conversation that I think people get to know each other after tens of it. So I generally wish for more conversations like that, but it's not. Okay. Who made, who has made you reevaluate yourself? So for me, I honestly, not because she's here, but it it was Tara. (laughs) Not fair. That's my answer. (laughs) No, it really was. (laughs) Because, It was, it really was because I am like you, you were talking about earlier about how like our brains are kind of in a way complementary because they're so different from each other. But there was so much about 
understanding myself, understanding my confidence or lack thereof, understanding why I felt a particular way, understanding how to take control of my emotions and thoughts. A lot of it were foreign to me. And I actually, I was one of those people who didn't believe a whole lot in psychology, honestly, thought a lot of that is, you know, you know, I can figure that out on my own, or I can just think through my problems. And really, my perspective on psychology changed, but it really, I got to know myself better, what my weaknesses were, what things in my childhood resulted in some of the ways I feel both good and bad. And I think a lot of that exploration Tara helped me have. So it, it, it honestly, the right answer is Tara. That's sweet. <laughs> well, the, the kind of the answer for me is Mary as well. Because I think throughout our talks, many talks, I think I learned a lot from a world that I didn't know much about. You know, being in the field of psychology, you get so focused in your own world of kind of understanding the field, understanding the philosophy and really getting into the nitty gritty of what's happening. You kind of can lose sight of the world outside in terms of like, what are the newest technology advancement? What are the newest economic advancement? What are people really talking about? What matters? So by many always kind of being there and kind of trusting me in a lot of knowledge, I've learned so much about the world world where actually I've been able to apply to myself and also work well with my clientele because kind of the world that he goes is so familiar with the work I deal with, but the knowledge is something Mm -hmm. that I have to really get exposed to. And through him, I learned so much and learned to trust me and really push through that there's more to me than I ever trusted. So that's, that's cool. So yes. (laughs) Okay. Impossible question. What would your advice be to someone that's about to graduate, uh, go study, might have a dream, a goal, a grand ambition, but has been told, forget it. That's impossible. Mm. That's a a nice answer. That's a very nice answer. There's, I think impossible is impossible. I would say just, you know, push through, you know, prove, prove them wrong, prove yourself wrong. And really go for it because there's nothing okay. to lose. Actually, to to kind of reflect on this question, this is the point I'm trying to teach my 21-month-old too, that it's not about you accomplishing things. Like it's not about the end goal. It's not about you kind of putting the blocks and the blocks going tall. It's about the process, the journey of how these blocks feel to put on top of each other. The fact they fall is a good thing because then you can put them back on. So kind of from that, I would say like, you know, it's about the journey. It's not about the point that you're getting to really. It's good to have a goal and go towards it, but enjoy it. And that would be it. That's a, that's a great answer for me. It's, it, it definitely is, is a bit of the same, but I, you know, we talked about this a little bit earlier. I think a lot of things in the beginning of the road, if you look at the end, can look impossible or nearly impossible. You know, and the the example I remember, like when we were when I was in undergrad, Berkeley graded classes on a very strict curve. So to get an A, you would have to be in the let's say top six percent, seven percent of the class. Which means if there were fifty kids in the class, three were going to get A's. So if you look at that in the beginning, you're like, oh, my God, come on. Like, am I the th- one of the top three best students in this class? I'm never going to get an A. So it looks daunting in the beginning. But the best way to do it is don't think about that. One foot in front of the other. 
one lecture after the other, quiz after the other, and voila, sometimes you were the A. It was incredible. Mm-hmm. And the same thing happened to me in a law firm partnership because I have, I have first-year associates who I, I'm interviewing now at a law school who are like, you know, in, we take in as a firm about 125 first-year law students out of various law schools every year. And then by the time they're about eighth years, we make about six or seven partners. So it looks daunting. You know, they go, oh, my God, you know, am I the six out of 125? And what I told them is, listen, if I had thought about that, it sounds that sounds impossible. But there's no reason to think like that. You're not at that point. One foot in front of the other. Do really well on this assignment and then the next and then the next. And sometimes you're one of those six. And because life has interesting ways. A bunch of those 125 will decide for their own reasons. They don't want it. A bunch of them will decide to pursue other professions. And at the end of the day, actually, you look around when you're in eighth year and maybe there's 10, 12 of you and actually half of you make it. Those odds aren't so bad. And so... My advice to everyone who, when something big looks daunting, is actually, at least for me, is helpful not to look at the end and just look at one step at a time. Okay. Last few questions. We come out of COVID. We're out in the town. Karaoke bar. What's your go-to karaoke song? Gloria Gaynor. Yep. Okay. And then I think mine is is Sinatra. What's what's the name of that song that I love? My Way. My Way. Yeah. Sinatra's My Way. That would definitely okay. Be- We've all watched a ton of series documentaries on Netflix, Apple, Amazon and the likes. What would you recommend someone watch that they might not have? The funny thing is we, we watched The Lord of the Rings, all three. And I, I, I mean, it's, it's a shame, but I never watched Sopranos before. So throughout the pandemic, it was a time where I could actually watch The Sopranos and we finished the whole se- like the whole series. It was brilliant. What book would you want us to offer listeners that come up with a good comment in our comment section or on Instagram? It can be fiction, nonfiction. So I'll, I'll go. I think some, you know, some of them might have read this, but I happened to read it again during the pandemic and I thought it was awesome, which was Orson Welles' 1984. No, Orson Welles. George Orwell. Um, yeah. Recently, I actually read the, this book, Ego is the Enemy by... Ryan Holiday. Yes, he's, he's yeah. fantastic. And I would 100% recommend that, especially for the world that we live in. It's so helpful for people to read it and kind of feel validated and not so hard on themselves. Okay. And final question, who should we interview next? And this has to be someone that you know you connect us with that you think we would find interesting and would be good to interview? To be honest, the first person that comes to my mind, Mark, because in terms of interesting, I would say my brother. He's, and the reason I say that, because he is, he's, he's in finance right now and he was, he's so talented and he's lived a life where he was one of the most famous rappers of Iran and then kind of continues education, kind of removed himself from that world and now kind of works really hard in finance, still kind of plays his guitar and music, but also very kind of gone ho about his workout routines and like just kind of getting there. So I, I, I think in terms of your curiosity, about our world and where we come from, it would be an interesting person to kind of learn from. Sounds good. Okay. Mine's, mine's kind of a funny one. 
Have you done you, Mark? Sorry? Have you interviewed you? I think it would be interesting to have your wife interview you. If you, if you, if you haven't done an episode with you as the I guest, was, I think that would be... F- no, I was interviewed last week by a, a podcast um, called The Furious Curious, and they interviewed me last week, so it's done. Because <laughs> <laughs> that, that, that was the one I was thinking about, because yeah. I, I, I hadn't listened to that one, but I think you'd have some interesting okay. answers to these questions. You have to listen to that one. Um, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Though, though, though I haven't answered these questions. That's, a, that's a, actually that is a that's a really good point. Wow, maybe that's a challenge that might have to be taken up. Yeah, yeah. I can put you in touch with them. <laughs> <laughs> okay, right. Look, it's late on a Sunday night. I've not eaten yet, so I'm going to go and cook. So I just have to thank you for your time and your energy and your expansive minds and your passion. And Tara, your compassion and your the work that you're doing. I think certainly the work you're doing, Tara, the humanistic approach to uh, therapy is obviously benefiting people around the city and around the, the state. And I think your advocacy, Mehdi, for changes in mental health policy in corporations and particularly big law, as you said, is a leadership position that I think will result in significant impact and uh, change and improvements to people's well-being in life. So I think, you know, credit you and acknowledge you for that leadership position you're taking. And I think the combination of the, your two minds are fascinating and I look forward to continuing to talk to you down the road. Same here, likewise. Yeah, thanks, Mark, for having us. This was, this was great. Okay. <laughs> well, enjoy the rest of your Sunday night and uh, we'll you. speak soon. Definitely. Okay. okay. That's all for this week, folks. If you're enjoying the show, please subscribe, rate, recommend, or review, depending on where you listen. And if you have someone you'd like us to interview, just DM us on Instagram at The Impossible Network or email us at info at theimpossiblenetwork.com. And please give our other podcast, The Raw Hospitality Show, a listen. They are both Fabrica Collective Productions. See you next time.